The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as we open your word and we ask for you to teach us by your spirit. Open your word in front of us that we might know more of who you are, how you operate in the world. Trusting every verse in the Holy Scriptures is able to teach us, to correct us, to encourage us, to build us up, to train us in righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work. We trust that this morning. And we ask that by your Spirit, you not only show us what your Word says, but you open our hearts to examine what's on the inside, that we might take your Word and apply it to our lives. We know that by your Spirit, you will do that this morning, and we pray that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to picture the scene at the beginning of creation, just before God lays the foundations of the earth. The angels are there at some time prior 
had been created by God. We're not told. We just have this scene in the book of Job where God is coming in at the end of the story and He's talking to Job. And He says this in Job 38, verses 4-7. to Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? I love the little vignette at the end of Job where God comes in and gives these just little pictures of things that happened and things that He has done. And here at the end of the book, God is is humbling Job. And you and me and basically everybody who would read it. And He describes this heavenly scene when the world was created. And He says the angels were present there. And in this passage, they're referred to as the, the sons of God. They're there in the scene. There's something of an audience as God lowers His crane or whatever. And when the foundations of the earth are put into place, His audience says, Yeah! And shouts for joy. This morning, we're going to take a closer look at the last verse in chapter 1. And we're going to consider the purpose of angels. This won't be the last time we do that. The entire second chapter nearly is concerned with the topic of angels. And then the author of Hebrews is going to come back to angels a number of times in the book. So it'll be something that we visit here and again. In our world today, angels still preoccupy our minds and they pervade our culture. Some will speak of loved ones who die as having become angels. And they watch over us as we go about our day. Some talk about their guardian angels watching over them and protecting them from all kinds of catastrophes. And as we all know, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings, right? It's... Throughout our culture, it's common to our movies and everything. Even the world of the occult is preoccupied with the worship of angels. Mostly demonic angels, but occasionally also the fascination of angels of light as well. Angels represent, I think, another realm. I know they do it. I think this is the fascination with it. The reason our minds are so often preoccupied by angels, is that they represent another realm of God's created order, a realm that we cannot see. And so, the thought that we might, from time to time, be visited, or see an appearance of an angel, or something like that, or or some way come in contact with these beings, brings this sense to us of maybe blessing, or favor, Or maybe a special feeling that we're anointed for something special because we saw an angel. Everyone has a desire to feel special. 
It's common to all of us. There's a danger, I realize, in opening up our fascinations with angels. We get a glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 19, verses 9 to 10. Angel said to John, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So here is the Apostle John who is getting a vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb at the culmination of human history. And he is overwhelmed at what he's seeing. And he turns to the one who is presenting him this vision, and he bows down at his feet and worships him. And in the midst of this heavenly vision, he is revealing the very temptation that probably you and I would face if we were given this very same vision. So turn to this angel and bow down and worship this majestic creature. I think if right now our eyes were open to see myriad of angels present around us at this moment, you certainly wouldn't be listening to me speak as our minds would be preoccupied with what's going on around us. We might also be tempted to bow down and worship them as we see John here is even tempted in Revelation 19. The danger in angelic fascinations is is obviously made worse by the fact that the devil and his demons masquerade as angels of light. So contrary to the cartoons where the devil is depicted as a, wearing a red suit and has a pitchfork and horns and things like that. The devil and his demons don't come to you dressed like that with a sign that says property of Satan. In fact, they, they masquerade as angels of light, demonstrating themselves to you as angelic beings, so that if you were to encounter one, you might be preoccupied with them, listen to what they have to say. They might capture your imagination. So there is a tremendous danger here, as we see even in the occult, their fascinations being opened to the worship of angels and demons. So this morning, we're going to take a close look at what the text says about angels so that we might not be tempted to focus on angels. I recognize the irony that's present there. We're going to focus on angels this morning so that we don't focus on angels. In our study of Hebrews, so far we've seen that the purpose of this letter, or maybe it was more like a sermon to a group of early Christians who converted from Judaism, is to tell them how the Son of God is superior to any other way God has revealed Himself in the past or ever will reveal Himself in the future. He started out with the prophets long ago at many times, he says, and in many ways. God revealed Himself through the ministry of the prophets, through their writings, through their spoken word, 
through their demonstration of miraculous works like raising the dead or healing the leper or parting the Red Sea even. But he says in verse 2 that now in these last days God has spoken to us by His Son. And the entirety of the rest of the book of Hebrews is about how the ministry of the Son is superior to all other ways God could have revealed Himself to us. The rest of the book is about the Son being greater than the whole Old Testament, if we want to put a fine point on it. The Son is better, He says, because He is the heir of all things, first of all. Second, because the world was created through Him. Third, He is the radiance of the glory of God. Fourth, He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Fifth, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Sixth, He made purification for our sins. Seven, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is God's right hand. Last week, we went through verses 4 all the way through 13 and touched on 14 where we are this morning. And we saw that after becoming human, having accomplished all that Christ set out to accomplish, He has now returned to His place of superiority over the angels. And the author of Hebrews goes through seven Old Testament quotations. And there he makes three basic points about the Son's place over the angels. He says, unlike the angels... The Son is King. The Son is the eternal God. And third, the Son is Judge. So, if we pay attention to this verse here in verse 14, coming now all the way to the end of chapter 1, it actually can help us to understand the function of angels and the ministry of angels to us. It might sound like, if you just read chapter 1, that the author is disparaging angels at the expense of the Son. And it's quite the opposite. It's not that angels are to be disparaged in their ministry. They have a very important task. It's just that they don't compare to the ministry of the Son, nor should they preoccupy our fascinations. So if we pay really close attention to verse 14 here, it'll help us to understand why the ministry of angels is important to us and what they actually tell us about The Son. So we're going to meditate on that this morning in verse 14. Look with me there. It says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So the first point here is very obvious. Angels are ministering spirits. Angels are ministering spirits. I want you to remember in the context of what we're looking at this morning, this verse is a contrast between the ministry of the Son and the ministry of the angels. And so the author is providing evidence that the Son is greater than the angels. So there's two important contrasts right here to notice. First is that angels are spiritual, whereas the Son actually became man. There's a contrast there between the kind of ministry angels have to us Versus the kind of ministry the Son has. Angels are spiritual ministers. The Son actually became man. Of course, we spent the last few weeks talking about the Incarnation and and why it's so important. 
God became man in the Son. We see Him uh, dwell among us. The disciples are there, able to experience life with Him. They're able to follow Him where He goes. They're able to go lay their head down in the same place He lays His head down. Here is the, the, the personification of the glory of God made manifest in front of the disciples. And they say, we have seen His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the exact imprint of His nature, and they can follow Him around. They can touch Him. They can receive food from His hand. They can pass food to Him. He can eat with them. They can give Him high fives. There's all kinds of physical realities that they're engaged in with the Son there in His ministry. He is fully and truly both God and man, and He remains that to this day. This means that the Son could be seen. He could be touched. He touched lepers. He touched the blind. He touched the lame. They were made well. He had a real, tangible ministry that people could follow, take part in. He ate. He drank. He slept, he wept, he laughed, he walked, he talked. Angels, however, are different in quality entirely. They are spiritual ministers. Notice, they are not former loved ones. Let's just correct that myth right now. They're not former loved ones who have passed away. They are created spiritual beings. They were there when the foundations of the earth were sunk and they shouted for joy. And so being spiritual means that there could be hundreds or thousands or maybe even millions in this room at this very moment and we would have no way of knowing it except that they reveal themselves. How many can fit in a room? How many can fit on the head of a pin? I don't know. That's not what we're here to discuss. The point is, because they're spiritual, they could be around us at any moment and we would have no way of knowing it. They're likely all around you at any given point. Now, I realize that at the moment, hearing that angels are spirits and that they may be riding in your car with you on the way home is less than comforting. Can understand that. And some parents may have some explaining to do at bedtime tonight. I get that. But just follow with me as we continue to pull on the thread of what angels are and what they're doing. It helps. The first contrast we see here between the Son and angels is angels are spiritual and the Son is one of us. Second, the angels are ministering spirits. It says, sent. Whereas the Son. It says in the previous verse, sits at the right hand of God. Angels are ones that stand, some within the throne room of God, and are sent at His command to do His bidding. We see an example of this in Luke chapter 1, verse 18. You may remember this scene. Zechariah is there ministering in the temple and Zechariah says to the angel, he sees an appearance of an angel, he says to him he's going to have a child, and Zechariah responds to him, obviously because Zechariah is really old, he says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, 
And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So here we see Gabriel is telling Zechariah, I'm sure this is not the response that Zechariah wanted when he asked this question in the temple. But here is Gabriel who stands in a position of authority because, he says, I stand in the presence of God and I am sent here to do what the Lord has told me to do in giving you this word. And in this case, he's sent to tell Zechariah about the future birth of his son, who is going to be John the Baptist, a forerunner to Christ. Now, notice that he also has some type of command over Zechariah's ability to speak. Since he silences him, he makes him a mute due to his unbelief. He's able to have that kind of authority over Zechariah. But here's why I think that's significant. The angels here, as Gabriel demonstrates, stand in the presence of God and are sent to do His bidding. But now, who sits at the right hand of the Majesty on high? It is the Son who has made purification for sins and now, having done that, sits at God's right hand. So now these angels, author tells us, serve the special interest of the Son who is now sitting at the right hand of God in His heavenly throne room. Now I want you to hold on to that thought for just a second because we're going to come back to it in a minute. As ministering spirits, one of the tasks they are sent to do is fight battles against enemies of God's people. And sometimes those are spiritual enemies. Now, I'm not trying to complicate matters in any way as we think about uh, the life and work of angels, which is already hard enough for us to imagine. To imagine. We see several times in, scriptures where, in the Scriptures where the angels are battling against spiritual enemies, against demonic forces that are opposed to God's purposes. One example of this is in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 and 9. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. There are a few chapters in the Old Testament and in the New where we see examples of this kind of war going on, or wars like this, between spiritual beings, angels and demons. There's an example in Daniel 10. There's examples in Jude where the angels are engaged in these kinds of skirmishes, especially with the devil. Now, what effects do these battles have? have on you and me? What happens as a result of their war with each other? We can only speculate, but it's safe to assume that it is one aspect of God's intended purpose for angels 
is to engage in this kind of conflict against God's enemies. But other times, they actually fight against physical enemies, against people. Like when we see the two angels come to the town of Sodom and the men of Sodom are trying to get to them. And Lot can't seem to rationalize with these men as they're wanting to beat the door down, nor can he fend them off any longer. And so the angels, the two men looking, uh, two angels looking like men, reach their hands out and blind the men at the doorway. Then they proceed to call down fire from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah, destroying the city. There are some times where they engage in battles with physical people. They are also ministering spirits, but even though they're ministering spirits, they sometimes appear as human. Abraham washes the feet of the angelic visitors just before the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. He washes the feet of the visitors that come to him. And, and obviously then we see the men of Sodom try to seize the angelic visitors to Lot, thinking that they're men. The angel of the Lord in, the, in some following books, especially in the book of Joshua, appears to Joshua. And Joshua thinks that he is a warrior. And he asks, whose side are you on? Are you for me or against me? And he says, no. Wait, are you for me or against me? No. I'm an angel. And at that point, he bows down and worships him. And, and the angel says, the angel of the Lord says, take your shoes off for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. There is times where these angelic visitors appear as mere humans. I might be so bold as to suggest that in a time of need, some of you might have unwittingly even encountered such a minister. When the author of Hebrews encourages Christians to act hospitably towards strangers, he says this in Hebrews 13 verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now no doubt he's thinking about the story of Abraham entertaining these angels, not realizing exactly who is in front of him. So here he offers this possibility to New Testament Christians that this is what the re one, of, one reason why you would be hospitable towards people you have never met. Now all of those things that can be said about angels from the first part of this verse, some of which you have probably known and some of which you, you haven't, they're important to identify and understand. But that's not the point of this verse. The main point of this verse is that angels serve those inheriting eternal life. Angels serve those inheriting eternal life. The first matter of importance in this verse is that they serve at the behest of the Son who is accomplishing salvation for you. Angels serve at the behest of the Son who sits at the right hand of the Majesty on high who is accomplishing salvation for you. Look at the last half of verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits? He says, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They're sent out by whom? 
by the Son who sits at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Why does He send them out? For the sake of those who are to inherit eternal life. That is, the followers of Jesus. But why does He do that? Why does He employ angels on His behalf to minister to you, even if that is unwittingly? Even if you don't know it or understand or see that they're there? Why does He do that? Because the goal of the Son is to bring glory to the Father through His atoning work by saving God's children from judgment and bringing them to glory. The Son is on a mission. And the mission that He's on is to bring all of God's children to glory, purchasing their atonement and ministering to them along the way. So the ministry of angels is the Son's ministry to us. You understand? So then to turn to the worship of angels, or even to the fascination of angels, or to open our minds to that world and to think, that is what I really want to see, to serve them in any way, is like turning to the mailman and praising him for the check that you found in your mailbox. They're messengers. Letter carriers. Now, unless you have a generous mailman. Otherwise, it would be just as illogical. I'm sure you have the question bouncing around in your head. How do angels serve us? How do they serve us at the behest of the Son? The only way I can answer that question is with how angels have been used in the Bible. In fact, if you were to take your Bible and just do maybe an internet Bible and do a search for the word angels just in the book of Acts alone, you would see many of the ways angels minister to God's children. In the New Testament, angels give important messengers messages to believers. Most notably, obviously, the resurrection. They come to the empty tomb and there, there are angels sitting there and, and they say, why, why do you look for the living among the dead? But then in Acts 10 and 11, an angel comes to Cornelius and tells Cornelius, call for Peter. He's going to share the gospel with you, essentially. In Acts chapter 12, an angel kills Herod because he doesn't, doesn't give God glory. In Act, also in Acts 12, an angel breaks Peter out of jail, removes his chains from him, opens gates, blinds the eyes of guards. This happens many other times in scripture, in the scriptures, where angels do things for God's people as they share the gospel and things like that. In Acts 27, an angel comes to Paul in the midst of the tumultuous storm on the sea and, and gives him a word of encouragement and even a prophecy and tells him, You're going to Rome and you're going to face Caesar there. But let's not forget about some of the other scenes. If you were to broaden your search out, you would probably stumble across one passage in the Old Testament, like in 2 Kings, between Elisha and his servant. The servant wakes up one morning and goes to get his cup of coffee, 
and opens his windows and looks out, and he sees the king of Syria's armies out his back window. And he goes to his other window, and he sees them out there too. And he goes out his front door, and he sees them out there too. And he's getting really nervous because his entire house is surrounded by the armies of Syria. And so he goes to Elisha, the prophet, and it says this in 2 Kings 6, 15-17, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountains, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, all of these are extreme examples. I get it. And I know that probably going around the room, perhaps no one has experienced this kind of miraculous, majestic appearance of angels. You might be saying to yourself, look, I get it, but how do I know that they're working on, on my behalf? How, how do I know? I, I've never been broken out of prison. Never had the shackles fall off. Doors open. Guards just let me go by without even seeming to see me or pay attention. I've never seen the hills filled with chariots and horses and angels and things like that. I've, I've never had any one of those kinds of things happen. I want to ask you, how much of Jesus' ministry on your behalf is invisible to you? His intercession on your behalf, the Bible tells us that He prays for us. How many of those prayers are you privy to? How many have you heard? The atonement that He accomplished before God, paying the penalty there on God's altar, you take that on faith not having witnessed it yourself? What about your future resurrection from the dead? All of these things are objects of your hopeful expectation. You're trusting in realities that you cannot see. It's the essence of the Christian life. I realize that even talking about angelic ministry seems crazy maybe to some. Definitely to people outside this room. Maybe even to some inside this room. How crazy is that? You understand that as Christians, the essence of what we teach and preach is a belief in a world that is beyond this one. A realm that is more than merely physical. So many things that are true to our faith, the essence of Christ's ministry on our behalf, we take on faith 
assuming that His Word is true. That's what we're to do here with the angelic ministry that that He appoints on our behalf. We trust that He's doing so for us. But don't miss the point of this verse. That it is because of Christ's work on your behalf that all of God's heavenly angels are working for you, not against you. You understand what he's saying here that's significant about the atoning work of the Son. It means that all of heaven is employed for your favor because of what the Son has done. It's Christ's atoning work that has turned it in your favor. So angelic ministry is a ministry of the Son of God to you. This is the effect for the Christian of the Gospel message. All of Christ's emissaries, all of His angels, everyone that serves at His behest is appointed to serve His people who are in the thick of the battle against sin and temptation and the forces of darkness. That's their purpose. So consider then what we read at the beginning of this from Job, where all the sons of God are there at the creation of the world. Why would it be that when He sets the foundation of the world, that all of the sons of God shout for joy? Is it because that they are now able to achieve the purpose for which they were created, to be ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I think so. Angelic ministry should not be the object of our affection or speculation, of our fascination, of our intrigue, and definitely not our worship, because the ministry of angels is the ministry of the Son. It's His work to you. Why? Because by His atoning work, you're His. Now, we cannot begin to fathom the multitude of ways that your life has been served by Christ's angels. What is it that you've been protected from? What is it that you've been guided to? How have you been shielded? How many times do you think Satan would have threshed you like wheat if only he was permitted to do so? But he wasn't. There's no way of knowing. This is what we take on faith. The things that we go through in this life are myriad. Suffering and trials of all kinds. As servants of Christ who suffered on our behalf, as followers of Him, what are we following Him to? Suffering. So this life is one of constant suffering. 
but it is their purpose, that is of angels, to be appointed by the Son to minister to us in various ways while we suffer. The comfort here is not that your life is in the hands of angels. The comfort is that your life is seen by God who has appointed His ministers to guard you. The comfort is not in them. It's that they stand at the ready to fly at His command to your side. That means, Christian, that there is no pain that He does not see. There is no hurt that He does not notice. But He has employed everything, yes, even His angels, heaven itself, to ensure that no one will carry you away from eternal life. He has ensured that you will reach the destination He has set for you. In that, there's comfort. So our temptation is to be fascinated at the thought of angels attending us. If we ever were able to glimpse one, our minds might even drift into worship of these majestic creatures. But the check to our fascination is that these are creatures too. And they serve at the behest of the Son who has sent them at His command to serve the purpose of your eternal salvation. So as the angel says to John, I think it would be a good word for us to hear out of this passage this morning. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. In that there is much comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that even from a passage like this one, we might receive comfort. Perhaps if our minds have been preoccupied with spiritual wonders, things other than the Son, that we might be corrected. That we might turn our worship to Christ who died on our behalf, who made atonement for us, and who because of His work has reconciled you to us. I pray that that would be our preoccupation. That that He would receive the object of our fascinations. That our minds, when they wander, would wander to the work of the glorious Son of God who gave Himself for us. That we might be one with You. So Father, do that in the life of our church. Make us people who revere Christ, who read your word so that we might know more of who he is 
and who he has called us to be as his followers, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.